Hi, everybody. So um, let's see. Kirk asked me specifically to speak on the topic of for the display of his splendor. So uh, if you like the topic, you can blame Kirk. If you don't like the topic, you can blame Kirk. <laughs> um, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah tonight, chapter 60. I know it always feels like deep water when we venture into the prophets. I'm sorry? Oh, okay. always feels like deep water when we venture into the prophets. Um, Kirk did not mention this, but I have a set back there, actually a couple of sets, one on what is a real prophet. Um, I recorded those at uh, John Paul Jackson Studios. I'm trying to remember even when it was. I think it was earlier this year. And um, there's a set of recordings on advanced prophetic. The deliverance stuff that Kirk showed is DVD. I have it available on CD, but I didn't bring any of those with me mainly because I've been carrying those around for a long time, and I thought, well, the DVD is the newer form of that, so I'll bring that along because it's newer. But anyway, if you have an interest in studying more on the prophetic, how the prophetic ministry works, etc., these two newer series could possibly interest you. Uh, most people who have heard them tell me they like them, so there you go with that. Um, let's take a look at the book of Isaiah. Okay, don't touch. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. Obviously, there's a lot that is going on in this passage. This is, this is not your simple, easy uh, passage <clears throat> in the sense that it has just one layer of meaning. The more you look at this, the more it jumps off the page at you. Isaiah was a prophet whose message grew throughout his ministry. Now, I think for many people, when we read the Bible, we read it as a static book. We read it as something that you know, the revelation came, the individual wrote it down, it became a set piece, and that's it. But the writers in the Scripture, most of them were growing in their walk with God just the way we grow in our walks with God. And so when we look at the 60th chapter of Isaiah, we're looking at something that comes fairly late in the life of the prophet. Isaiah was a man, he, he prophesied over a course of, depends on exactly who you read and what they, what they believe about beginning and end points, but it was not less than 60 years of ministry. You know, people celebrate nowadays because they've been in the ministry for 30 years. Well, you're just getting started compared to Isaiah's 60 years in ministry, or maybe 65, or, or maybe even 70. And so his prophesying grew over the course of 60 plus years of ministry and some people think that you know when we look at these latter chapters of Isaiah because of the nature of the way he's prophesying that we're really dealing not with Isaiah himself not with the man Isaiah but with somebody who was writing pseudonymously that most people who believe this way call the third Isaiah or in fancy theologians terms Trito Isaiah 
I don't believe that. I believe that the writings of Isaiah in chapter 60 simply represent the uh, the maturing of a prophetic gift which was already fairly well defined in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Uh, but by the time he's been at this for a number of years, carrying out his ministry, seeing kings rise and fall, watching two successive invasions of the Assyrians against the uh, kingdom of Israel to the north, watching after that the invasion of the kingdom of Aram, which today we would call Syria, against the kingdom to the north, and ultimately watching the collapse, destruction, and deportation of that north kingdom, all of that's going to work some depth into someone. Whatever depth Isaiah had, it got deeper as he watched these things unfold. Isaiah was a court prophet. He was a he was an advisor to the kings of Judah. And he would have been accustomed to sitting at table with visiting dignitaries, foreign diplomats, ambassadors from other countries that would have come to Jerusalem. And Isaiah, being a prophet, he would have had certain insights that would have been, well, of interest to the kings of his day. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, the kings of Judah. And so through all this time of up and down, through all this time of difficulty, through all this time of trial, God never stopped speaking and Isaiah never stopped prophesying. God is faithful through seasons. And when we look at Isaiah's 60th chapter of his book, we see that. Now long before any of these events that I've just mentioned, King Solomon, David's son, had written, My beloved speaks to me and says to me, Arise, my love, arise, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. When winter ends, new life emerges, and in the latter years of his life, in the midst of the worst of the calamities that came upon the land, Isaiah somehow found it within himself to let his spirit soar. These Last six chapters of the book of Isaiah are, well, I guess we would say they're lofty in their language, they're lofty in their concepts. And they, they, they speak to us of things that are among the most you know, powerful and sublime things that humanity can know. Looking forward to a time that was yet in the future, Isaiah is writing about several things in this one verse that we're talking about. Your people shall all be righteousness. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, in order that the beauty of my splendor may be seen. This is what Isaiah foresaw, that the people of God would themselves be righteous, that they would find that place of righteousness in God that they actually could only find in God. The people of God in Isaiah's day, hmm, well, not, not such wonderful people, really. They, they named the name of God, but idolatry was rampant. Uzziah the king had been struck by the Lord himself because as a king he had dared to offer a sacrifice that was reserved for priests, and he died after living the rest of his years in a separate house. People were offering their children in fire to false gods with names like Molech and Ashtoreth. And so the people of God needed to find their righteousness. They needed to be conformed to a pattern 
that they hadn't really found. They were like people on a journey, but they were seeking, 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 not able to come to that place of rest. <clears throat> the second thing Isaiah speaks about in this verse is he says that the people of God will be established permanently in the inheritance that they'd been given. Now, this is in some ways thematically the same as this first point, that the people of God are not grounded, they're not stable, they're drifting from place to place. They don't have a place to call their own. They don't have a homeland. Elsewhere, he had said earlier in his ministry that every man would sit under his own vine and fig tree. And it's that idea that he's reaching for here, but now he's saying they will be settled, they will possess the land forever. And obviously, with three armies coming at them, with the destruction of Jerusalem still 150 years off at the hands of a Babylonian army that hadn't even been seen yet, this idea of possessing the land forever, this is why Isaiah is looking ahead. He's looking with what we can call prophetic vision, with teleological vision, and he's seeing something yet to come, but he's saying this is the intention of God. This is the mind of God. This is the heart of God, and this will be the fulfilled plan of God. The third thing Isaiah says is that this would be the work of God's hands. No man would be able to do this. No scheme of a political system would be able to pull this off. No amount of money could bring it about. This would be the work of God's hands. And finally, that this would display the splendor of God. It would be the beauty, the, the beauty of what God is able to bring about when people see it happen. Everybody would know this shows something of the, of the remarkable nature of this God whom Israel serves. This is a synopsis of Isaiah 60, verse 21. So I want to use these ideas and try and springboard off of them a little bit and think a little more deeply about what was Isaiah speaking to? What was he prophesying into? What was he... So let's, let's take these things that Isaiah is prophesying about and try to draw some conclusions from them. Let's talk about seasons for a moment. I wonder how many of us really consider the lesson of seasons. And I might even say more pointedly, not, not with an accusing finger, but just nevertheless more pointedly, I might even ask how many Australians think about seasons because in a place like particularly Queensland, seasons are, you know, they're, they're like this. I know, in, I know in the winter, I've, I've been here in the winter, it gets a little chilly here in the shed. I know people come in wearing, you know, big hats like they're in Siberia and, and pea coats and, you know, they're all bundled up. They're wearing long underwear. I know they do that. But you don't know what you've got on your hands here. I mean, you know, on a, on a cold winter's day, it might be, what, six degrees? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me tell you something about seasons. If you live in Minnesota, in my country, on a cold winter's day, it might be 20 below zero. And you can pick Fahrenheit or Celsius, I don't care. It's 20 below zero. And when those people put on their peacoat, I mean, they really got to put it on because if they don't, they'll freeze to death between their garage and their car because exposed flesh will, you know, freeze that quickly. Not to be indelicate, but, you know, I've been hunting in weather like that. And, well, sometimes nature calls. And let's just say the stream freezes before it hits the snow. <laughs> yes, it does. 
So, <laughs> when you talk about seasons, you don't really know what you're talking about with seasons. You have it really good in Brisbane. <laughs> seasons come and go in life. And in warmer climates like this one, there may be very little difference between summer and winter, between spring and autumn. And yet, in most parts of the world, seasons are very real. They're very pronounced. They speak of the ebb and flow of life. And because these things are natural cycles, nature teaches us something of the, well, splendor of His glory. Nature teaches us something of the glory of God. And this is what we know. Bad times don't last forever. Good follows bad. And it's an important lesson and one easily missed because when things are bad, well, they seem very bad, don't they? We seem weighted down. We don't know what to do with those things that are coming against us. That, you know, we've lost a job. Maybe we've lost two jobs. Maybe we've lost jobs sequentially. Maybe the children are sick. Maybe the marriage isn't so great right now. You know, maybe, maybe if we still have a job, we're being made to work 12, 15 hour days because there's something going on and, you know, we, we've lost control of our life and our environment seems like, you know, everything is just more than we can take. And so when we're in, a, we're in a down season, when we're in the winter of life, well, it seems as though things will never end. And it seems as though they will literally be the death of us. But seasons exist not only in our personal lives, seasons exist in churchly life as well. There is an ebb and a flow in the life of the church. Sometimes the church seems to have the upper hand in society. It was this way in Europe for nearly 1,500 years, a millennium and a half. It's a long time. There are longer periods of time, to be sure, but in the scale of human history, that's starting to be long enough that, you know, unless you're really thoughtful and intentional about it, you're going to forget the lessons of what happened 500 or 1,000 years ago, let alone 1,500 years ago. And so from the fall of Rome until the early 20th century, the church held the upper hand, it held the sway in at least Europe, and by extension, places like Australia, New Zealand, any place that the European powers touched, the church held the upper hand. Now there's a lot of pros and cons to that. We could stand here and debate them. I'm not going to do that. I don't think it would be a good use of the time we have tonight. But I'm not here to say that I think it's all good when that happens, but it's certainly not all bad either. But here's what does happen is when the church holds sway in a society for a long period of time, and by the way, it does not need to be a millennium and a half. It might just be 20 or 30 years. Just a generation could do it. But when the church has the upper hand, when the church holds sway, maybe, maybe it forgets what it is to be a persecuted minority. Maybe it becomes more reliant upon the structures and institutions that exist around it so that it's no longer really reliant on the power of God. It becomes so enamored of wealth and of power, of lands and of papal estates and of armies and things like this that the church, the church forgets that, well, that God Himself is supposed to be the one who is a people's splendor. And so they place their confidence in the wrong things. This becomes idolatry for a Christian people. Did, you, did, you, did it ever occur to you that you could be a Christian idolater? 
because certainly these Jews became Jewish idolaters by going down that kind of a pathway. Now, there are other times, of course, when the church is a minority, perhaps persecuted and perhaps at peace with its neighbors. We can consider Iraq this year. Until the rise of ISIS, the Christian minority in Iraq had existed in that country literally since the days of the first apostles. We know that the church in Mosul, formerly known as Nineveh, was planted by one of the first 12 apostles. But there are no Christians left in Mosul today, November the 8th, 2014, because they either fled or were killed or were converted forcibly by the armies of ISIS. So sometimes the church is a minority. Sometimes it's persecuted. Sometimes it gets on okay with its neighbors. These things come and go. These are the winter and summer of life for a church or a church movement. Sometimes church life is routine. We show up, it doesn't seem like much is going on. We take communion, we baptize people, we preach. People are bored. Some even fall asleep in the sermon. They shouldn't, but they do. Right? This is church life. This is what happens. And yet there are other times that the church is exciting and it's dynamic. It's a time of breakout. There's explosive power. People are awakened. They, they can't wait to read the Bible. They come into service. They're, they're worshiping with all their lungs. They're, you know, they sing their lungs out, as we say in the United States. They're eager to sign up. They're eager to witness. They're eager to whatever it might be. Whatever God's doing, they can't get enough of it. In seasons like that, you might show up at church 10 minutes before the service and you'll be out of luck because there's no chairs left. People have come to the service early. They've claimed the real estate and they're just waiting for the service to begin so they can encounter God. 2011 was a time like that in Australian church life. Prophecy was breaking forth. I went with Kirk and Nicole and some others to the uh, Vineyard Annual Conference in Caloundra. And no matter where we went, God seemed to be speaking to us repeatedly and prophetically, profoundly, through the number 16. Remember that? 16 years. Everywhere we went, 16, 16, 16. It was like you couldn't make it up. And, and we realized God was somehow speaking, a, 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 not, just, not just thematically, but he had a meme, he had a larger uh, story that he was unfolding through the number 16. And the power of God was manifest. I remember coming home from a meeting in this building, walking into Kirk's kitchen, and is that Jody Ann back there? I saw Jody Ann in the kitchen with Nick, and they were cooking. And I had this little tiny piece of cloth about so big that had been given to me by a prophet who told me that it had come off a larger piece of cloth that at one time had been prayed over by William Branham. And I walked into the kitchen and Nick and Jody were cooking. You remember this? And Nick said to me, stay away from me with that thing. And I just held it up like that. And it, I mean, it just barely touched her forehead. And she was, I wouldn't say she was even knocked to the ground. She was hammered to the ground by the Spirit of God, as was Jude Ann. And we took some pictures of it. And they were, they were like out of the fight. This wasn't one of those courtesy drops. This was like, you know, <laughs> could have taken a brick bat, just poof. <laughs> and so there they were for 45 minutes on the kitchen floor. We ate lunch late that day. Love was in the air. 
People were falling in love with Jesus. They were falling in love with each other. There was some reconciliation in this church. People who'd been divisive, people who'd been on the fence, people who maybe weren't sure they wanted to commit, but suddenly they did commit. And suddenly they came around and they said to Kirk or Nicole or maybe to some of the other leaders, to Corey or John Bujay, who's around in those days, you know, I, I realize, I realize what evil my wife and I have been guilty of spreading slander and sedition in this fellowship. Can you ever forgive us? And then going around and embracing the brethren and the sistren and saying, you know, we realize we've, we've, We've been wrong. And there was a welcoming back into the flock. There was that embracing into the bosom of God. During that season, angels were even appearing. Those were good times. If you were here, you remember it. Kirk and I went to Caloundra with two other friends, and we saw flights of angels come over our head like planes in formation, heading south out of the uh, Sunshine Coast towards Brisbane. But when we came back, we were splayed out on the floor just about here and something came through this church. I'm not even sure still to this day what it was, but people felt something touched their shoulder and illness was leaving their body. People, people opened their eyes and they were sure that they were seeing angels here in the service and people were just sort of being knocked about and knocked silly by the power of God. 2011 was a great year. It was summer in the spirit. 2012, though, wasn't so great. We entered a down cycle in the vineyard. We entered a down cycle in the Australian church globally. Well, globally meaning across the continent. And in the journeys that I was doing throughout the wider body in Australia, I would have characterized the state of the church in this land as dazed, confused, and tentative. Faith was kind of at an ebb. People were wondering what had become of the glory that had been there the last year. We were heading into autumn. Summer was ending. Jeremiah had a saying, Jeremiah 8.20, the summer is ended, the harvest is over, and we are not saved. We'd seen something in 2011, but we had not seen the great visitation that everybody was hoping would happen. It seems to be a peculiar problem in the life of the church um, throughout history, really, that even when people are correctly anticipating what God is going to do, somehow in all of that, they're always a few years too early. And so they prophesy into the future what isn't yet time for fulfillment. And then 2013 was winter. It was a hard year for everyone. Churches shrank. People lost vision. There was no money around. Some churches laid people off. They wondered what they were going to do. And now we're in 2014, and just as spring follows winter, I guess I'd say, I think we're coming into the springtime. Time will tell, of course. Sometimes there are false springs. When I was living in the eastern United States, we had a few of those. You'd get a few warm days, and the trees would get so excited that the buds would form, you know, the tulips would come up, the daffodils would come up, and then another snowfall would come, and you'd have six more weeks of winter. We have a groundhog that lives in uh, part of Pennsylvania, and we have a holiday in the United States called Groundhog's Day. And this groundhog has a name. His name is Punxsutawney Phil. 
He's Phil the groundhog, and he lives in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Well, Punxsutawney Phil sticks his head up on Groundhog Day, and if he leaves his head up, then we think spring is upon us, but if he goes back down, batten down the hatches because winter's still here. So many of us are anticipating that 2014 is spring. Time will tell. No one, there's no Punxsutawney Phil in the spirit. So we'll just have to see on that one. But people contemplated prophecies, some of them long gone. Some of them prophesied perhaps a hundred years or more ago. Some of them prophesied by people with names like Fernando de Quiros from four centuries ago. As they thought about those things, they said, surely now this is the time for realization. It's time for the, for the harvest to come. The fruit is here. God began sending well-known leaders in quantity into Australia. All of the biggest names really in the world in terms of charismatic or, or Revival Alliance or River Stream Christianity began coming to this land from wherever it is that they call home. In fact, you might even say that in some ways the Australian church calendar, and I'm not talking vineyard now, I'm talking your country, the Australian uh, church calendar became so jam-packed that you know you almost couldn't come anymore because otherwise you just have people stacked on top of people stacked on top of people and it becomes almost overkill but it was clear that the lord began you know sowing into something in this land and just as spring follows winter you sow for harvest in the spring you sow the crops you put the seed in the ground even sometimes when the ground is still wet and cold and half frozen you do that so that there will be a harvest in due season and so hope sprang forth again, and it has seemed to me as I've traveled this year that things are on the uptick. I don't know how many of you are part of my um, God is not a theory group that Kirk was talking about, but uh, just in the last couple of days in Perth, there was an event called Perth for Jesus. They hold it annually. It's a big rally. It, it runs between eight and 12, 15,000 people. They usually hold it in the big... Uh, sports complex that they have out there. <clears throat> Most years they have a man named uh, Pastor uh, Daniel Kayanja from, I think he's from Nigeria. I'm surprised they let him in with Ebola running rampant, but anyway, they let him in. So he, um, he held the Perth for Jesus rally. They have other speakers as well. I don't know how exactly it happened. I didn't hear the ins and outs of the, of this healing, but there's video up on my group right now that one of the women who's in the group who lives in Perth shot of a, of a young man, um, mid-twenties. He's been autistic his entire life with extreme ADHD. He was healed. And they interview him. You can hear him talk. You can see him speaking. You can see quite clearly and demonstrably that this man is no longer an autistic man. And not only that, his mother is there and she's talking about the experience that they've had, that they've been through on this long journey from winter heading into spring and hopefully into summer. Now, there have, there have been other dramatic healings of that type, but this one's like 48 hours old. So I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to it, even though it's not, it's not my healing, it didn't happen under my ministry, it's still a valid sign that God's doing something in this country. And you know, when you're hanging way out here on the east side of the country in Brisbane, you might miss that one. You might not know that these things are going on, but all around this land, there are places here and there they, that, you know, when, when, the, when the GFC hit, people started talking about little green shoots. Well, there are little green shoots that seem to be coming up 
in the spirit. And I would say that the healing of an autistic man and you know the ability to interview him on camera and have him speak coherently and persuasively about what happened to him, that's a pretty good green shoot. That might be more than a green shoot. That might be a green trunk. But there have been others like this. Cripples healed, deaf people healed, people getting healed of food allergies, cancer defeated, renal failure, all these kinds of things. God's doing these things all around your land. And it has seemed to me that, you know, if 2012 was in fact winter, or excuse me, autumn, and 2013 was winter, as we've moved into 2014, I am seeing a, a discernible and clear uptick in all of these things no matter who I'm talking with, no matter which minister it is that's come through, no matter what meeting it is that's happened, things are going on. That's all good, right? So why does God allow these seasons of life? Why do we have ebb and flow in God? What's the purpose of it? Well, seasons teach us to take a long view. It's a bit like physical training for athletes. If you're going to compete, you've got to get enough training in you that when you're in the race and you know you feel like your legs are burning up, your lungs are going to burst or you know whatever sport you're doing, if you're a swimmer, your arms are going to fall off, but whatever, you feel like you can't go anymore, you say I can go more, I know I can go more, I've trained for this, I'm ready, I'm capable, I'm going to keep going. Seasons build that kind of well, long obedience in the same direction. I'm obviously drawing on the language of Eugene Peterson who wrote a book by the same title. Seasons teach us that we should prepare for lean times, not assuming that it will always be fat times, because winter does inevitably follow summer. Now, I'm not sure. I think this visitation that we're all looking toward and, and hoping is, is upon us now or about to dawn, that one might not have a, a, too much of a down cycle. It, it seems that if you listen to the voice of the prophets, most of them are saying this is kind of an, an onward and upward kind of thing. So... I don't know, maybe the cycle of winter is going to be suspended for a while. But seasons also teach us to anticipate good times because summer inevitably follows winter. It will not remain frozen and cold forever. But seasons also test whether our commitment is such that we are really in this for the long haul. And that's an important lesson to learn because unfortunately in a society such as we live in, Everything's up for grabs. Nothing's really permanent. I mean, heck, even marriage isn't viewed as permanent anymore. And so the question really comes to the people of God, the question really comes, if God says that His people shall all be righteous, the question is, will they continue to walk in righteousness? Or will they get ten years in and will they abandon it? God says they shall possess the land forever. Well, if they're going to possess the land, that means they have to take the land. And in the middle of taking the land, will they somehow give up the fight and say, this is too hard, I'm going to give up and, and let it go. And so what seasons do is they test that, that aspect of us, of whether we really are going to be long-haul Christians. Because here's the thing, anyone can be a sunshine Christian. Anyone can be a Christian when, you know, it's, it's easy going and, and life is good, but are you ready to be a Christian in Iraq right now? Anyone can, anyone can bask in the warm sunshine, but what are you going to do when it's 20 below zero and your very bones hurt and ache because of the cold of winter? 
Jesus said this, that for some who hear the word of the kingdom, they have no real root in the soil. And so the young sprout dies away when tribulation or persecution comes. Well, what are these two things? We don't often think about the difference between them, but tribulation is difficulty and persecution is human opposition. Perhaps even more than opposition. It might actually be you know, physical pain or threat of death or actual willingness to carry it out. It might actually be murder. But Jesus said that some hear the word of the kingdom and they don't actually have any rootedness. Seasons test the rootedness. Plants that have deep roots survive winter because they're deep enough below the, the surface that when the surface freezes, they're still alive because they're drawing some water and nourishment out of the deep soil. It's cold. It's a slower rate of transport into the root system and up through the trunk, yeah, but they are able to draw. But you know, plants that live right on the surface and their roots are only on that top layer, foot or so of ground that freezes hard, they die off. That's what seasons teach us. Seasons teach us something about the rhythm of life. To use modern language, we would say seasons teach us about resilience and sustainability. So seasons are not bad. The other thing that seasons teach us, though, is that just after winter, there comes spring, and after spring comes summer. And so what this tells us is something about the nature of God, that God is a God of restoration. God is a God of restoration. And he says, the branch of my planting. Well, I've been using agrarian metaphors and analogies. The branch of my planting is the work of my own hands for the splendor of my own glory, for the display of my own splendor. Now, what is the splendor of God? I talked with the worship leading community this afternoon about this. I'm not going to recapitulate all of that, but... In brief, the splendor of God is the beauty of God. And it, and it, it carries with it a sense that it's, it's like a shining, the colors, the, the effulgence of God is breaking forth. This could be literally physical. You might actually see some manifestation of God or of His presence that looks like the shining of the sun or the colors of God. There are many through history that have reported this. But even if you don't see that physical side of God, the physicality of God, the beauty of God that these 70 elders saw when they went up on the mountain in Exodus 24 and they saw a, a pavement like sapphire under the feet of God. It was as though they could quite almost reach up to touch it. And there they saw God seated on the throne. They saw that sapphire blue firmament. There's something about that beauty, that physicality, it is available. It does happen. We don't want to make this all just a mental game or something that is purely in the realm of the Spirit. But there is also this beautiful side of God that He's unlike any other being in the universe. He's honest. He has no beginning. He has no end. These things are unlike any other anything in the universe. Even the universe has a beginning, but God doesn't. The universe will burn up with fire, but God won't. He'll be around long after that universe is gone. And when the entire history of the universe is no longer, and there's no more remembering of it, God himself will remember it because he was there before it was created. That's what makes God holy, because he is unlike any other being that we can conceive of. 
This is the holiness of God, and it is beautiful. God says He does these things in order to display His own splendor. That we would have some conception of who He is. We're going to come back to that idea. So when the Lord says that the people of God will all be righteous and they're going to possess the land forever for the display of His own splendor, what He is doing is speaking about restoration. And if I could say anything about what I think is happening, well, broadly in your country, but maybe more narrowly within this fellowship, perhaps it is that this is the time of restoration. Now, why is God passionate about restoration? Well, because restoration is who God is. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible that He's given the name restoration. He is given the name healer, and healing speaks of restoration. Exodus 15, 26. There's an interesting passage in the book of Zephaniah. It's where everybody's been doing devotions this week, I'm sure. In the book of Zephaniah, the Lord says, chapter 3, verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. There's that same kind of notion of, of recovering those that have been strewn about at, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. Oh, there it is. For the display of His splendor, something is going to happen among the people of God. That's what Isaiah said. That's what Zephaniah is saying. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes. It is the objective, it is the intention, it is the nature of God to turn back the fortunes of the people of God and to do it in front of our eyes. He has done these things and it is marvelous in our sight is what the psalmist says. That's, that's what God wants to do. What stops restoration? Us. If we don't get in the way, God will bring restoration. How do we know? Because spring follows winter. And summer follows spring. And the natural speaks of the invisible. And because the display of His splendor isn't just something that happens on a people or on a society, it's something that happens in the universe. God shows it over and over and over and over and over and over again. One of the things that becomes readily apparent when you study the religions of the world is that there are no other gods named under heaven who are gods of restoration. Not a one. I've studied them. I've ministered among those lands. I've dealt with people who are under those systems. Allah is not a god of restoration. They may say when they begin their creed in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, but they never say in the name of God, the restoration God, in the name of God, the restorer. But our God is a restoration God. You can go to the Hindus. Brahma is their creator. Vishnu is their sustainer. But Shiva, Kali, they are the destroyers. In fact, Shiva's name is, I am the destroyer of worlds. Where's the restoration? No mention. Zeus and Thor, the gods of the ancient Greeks and the Nordics, these were gods of destruction. 
Gods of thunder. Gods of rampage. No mention of restoration among those gods. You can go to the Zoroastrians. Go to the Baha'i. Go to the Buddhists. There's no mention of restoration. And when restoration comes, God gets the credit for it. Because only the Judeo-Christian God is the one who restores. Now this isn't meant to be a course in comparative religion, but it is important that we, that we point this out because here's the thing. We live in a day in which everything that is said is that all religions are equally valid. Nothing could be more untrue than that statement. All religions are not equally valid. I suppose somebody could get after me for saying that if this message goes out somewhere. But Christianity does not equal Islam, does not equal Hinduism, does not equal Buddhism, does not equal Jainism, does not equal Sikhism, does not equal Zoroastrianism, does not equal animism. These are all very different belief systems. And while there is power in some of those religions, that power derives its power from, or those gods derive their power from demonic, <clears throat> demonic influence. I know for some that's going to be offensive to hear. But I put in the miles and I've been in the dark places of the world to be able to tell you that. My life feels like a Darren Wilson film. <laughs> Outside of Judeo-Christianity, there are no gods of restoration, but our God is a God of restoration. And He is faithful to restore. He will surely restore. He will come like the rain. And when restoration comes, God gets the credit for what He's done. Nobody else does. Because He does what no one else can do. When an autistic young man is raised out of his chair and is able to speak against all odds and against all the dictates of medical science, who are you going to put up against a God that can do that? There is no one. For the display of His splendor, of His own beauty, of the, of the beauty of His own holiness that is unlike any other God ever dreamt up or named. That's who we serve. That's why He does it. Because He likes to show off. Because He likes to visit blessing and renewal upon His own people. And so God brings restoration to glorify Himself in a very particular way. He glorifies Himself in His people. You know, God could just launch the most amazing sunrise. Maybe three suns at once. Why not? He could do it. But He doesn't choose to do that. He says, I let my glory rest upon my people. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess their land forever. They will be a branch of my own planting like a graft. It will be the work of my own hands is what God says for the display of my own splendor, that all nations will know that I am God. Now, how does He do that? How does God go about bringing restoration? Well, Isaiah 60.21 is part of the longer chapter 60 of Isaiah. 
And Isaiah starts out, he builds up to this crescendo in verse 21, but he starts out, he says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of, Lord, of the Lord has risen upon you. This is, this is a summons to the people of God, but it is also a command. It's, it's like you don't get to choose whether you get to shine. You will shine. So shine! That's what he's saying. This is a now word. There is a beauty that comes over the people of God. And when that beauty comes upon them, it is like the glory of God rising upon them like a sunrise. Now, you will from time to time see people who have been in the presence of God, and they do shine. Their faces are radiant. There's a joy, there's a purity, there's a happiness, there's a, there's a hopefulness, there's an optimism upon them as opposed to all the other people that are driving down the road, just going to work, better get my cup off in the morning so I can you know, beat the traffic. There's a difference between the people of God. There's a line of demarcation and that's what Isaiah says, for look, behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness will cover all the peoples. They will be plunged into darkness. They will be filled with despair. They will not know which way to turn, but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is the hope that the people of God carry, that they will, that they will reflect that glory of God. They will have arisen. They will be shining, and the people round about will say, there, we want what they have. And they come. They come streaming to Mount Zion, is what it says in the lesser prophets. Often when God's glory is rising upon the people of God then, the darkness is increasing. Do you see the darkness increasing around you? It's getting darker out there. And I don't just mean that. And so, arise and shine, because in the midst of darkness the people of God are supposed to show forth the splendor of His glory. It's time to stand up and be the people of God. It's time to stand up and declare your colors. No more riding the line. No more hoping that nobody will you know, ask you if, are, are, are you one of those Christians? God does not promise exemption from difficulty. That's why the light of God rises on the people of God when great darkness is falling on all the peoples. The people of God are intended to go through hard times and difficulty so they can light the way for those who are still lost in the darkness. I know that doesn't really fit pre-tribulation rapture. Sorry. What he does promise is that he will see his people through difficulty. What he does promise is that his presence will be with them. What he does promise is that he will sustain them and he will provide for them and he will be with them. Yes, it might be hard, but he will see them through to the end. That's what he commits to. And the glory of God is to be marked and observable. That's why the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, this, these nations, these are, these are multiple peoples. These are different ethnicities. These are people from all over the world. You know, there's a, there's a calling on your nation, Australia. There's a calling on you to be the ones who lead what God is doing in the earth. It took a while for the wider prophetic body of Christ to pick up on this, but, you know, there's been a few people talking about this for a few years.
that Australia is to be the tip of the spear. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to rise up and shine? Because the Lord has need of you as a nation. And not just as a nation. Maybe this fellowship. Brisbane is changing. There are nations being drawn into this city. They're not all going to be white middle class. And the Lord may want to draw to you Sri Lankans and Iranians. The Lord may want to draw to you Chinese and Cambodians. People from Liberia and Zaire. They may come. Are you ready to do that? Because the Lord is drawing nations to the light. That's what He said in verse 3. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your rising. Are you ready for leaders to seek you out? Not because you're great, but because your God is. Because they see the hand of restoration on you. Because they see in a time of destruction and darkness, those people seem to know what they're doing. A city on a hill cannot be hid. That's what the Lord is in the midst of doing. The radiance of God is on the faces of the people of God. We've already said that. There will be a display of His splendor upon and among the people of God. They will be distinctive. Paul even speaks of this phenomenon when he says to the Philippians that the people of God are to shine like stars in the increasing gloom of, wait for it, a crooked and twisted generation. In the midst of gloom and evil because of the wonder of God on the people of God, the nations and their leaders are, will be fascinated by what they see going on. It might be a fascination of like, are you kidding me? Or it might be a fascination of, I want some. But there will be a fascination. And, and almost an inability to break gaze with it. It's like, I don't know if I love it or I hate it, but I can't stop looking at it. And God desires to mark His people. In the book of Revelation, it speaks to the mark that the Lord Himself will place upon the foreheads of those who have come out of tribulation and stayed loyal to Him. You know, everyone worries about the mark of the beast. I'd just like to figure out how to get that one on my forehead. That's the one I'm contending for. I want to be marked on my forehead. I just don't want the 666. I want that one from Revelation 14.1. When God's splendor is displayed among His people, they are radiant and their hearts are lifted up with thrill and exaltation. Verse 5, Then you shall see and you shall be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea that shall be turned to you and the wealth of nations shall come to you. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, it says in Psalm 126, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. You know, there is something to be said for the exaltation and jubilation of the people of God. I often wonder when I'm traveling, you know, I, I, I take note of different churches that I go to. When I was in Kandy, Sri Lanka 10 days ago, I went into this church and Pastor Pradeep said to me, you know, brother, when you're preaching, just don't speak of Buddhism. And I said, okay. I said, why is it that you don't want me to speak of Buddhism? Because, I mean, we're running into Buddhist spirits by the, by the hundreds. Drive out a Buddhist spirit, somebody gets healed. Drive out another Buddhist spirit, somebody else gets healed. But he didn't want me talking about Buddhism. I said, why is that? Because because my church has been burned to the ground three times by radical Buddhists. That would give you a perspective. But you know what I saw in Pastor Pradeep and in his congregation? These were people that were radiant. And their hearts were thrilling and exulting. 
A lot of times when I come to white congregations in places like Los Angeles or Brisbane, I don't necessarily see the people of God exulting and thrilling in their God. I see them sitting there while the worship band plays the songs. Why is that? The Lord summons is to arise and shine because the glory of God is rising on you. That should have an emotional impact on you that changes your emotional state, your mental state. It changes your affectation. That should be the normal Christian life. And that's what the Lord says. And He says, not only that, <laughs> wait for this one. The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. Well, you're, in a, you're a city-state by the sea. You've got a deep water port. The wealth of nations is going to come to you. Are you ready for that one? Would that make you happy? How about that one? Because a rising tide lifts all ships. When the wealth starts to flow into the port, the whole city is enriched. The whole region is enriched. Jobs pay more. Things get better. This is what the Lord says He wants to do. Now, I'm not a prosperity gospel guy, but I can read what the Scripture says, and restoration clearly includes the idea of restoration of fortunes, and that clearly includes the idea of some form of wealth. And so wealth flows into the people of God, not just so they can go out and buy the latest whatever, car, house, pick your favorite toy that you want. <clears throat> but this is what it says, a multitude of camels shall cover you, and young camels of Midian and of Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Now, we could articulate all these areas and what they mean, but we'd never get out of here tonight, so I'm not going to do that. But it says this, They shall come with acceptance to my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Wealth flows to the people of God for many reasons, and there are many good reasons that God would like to enrich His people, but one of them is to raise up a house for Him. And there you saw it, right there in verse 7. He goes on and says the same thing in verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine tree, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place where I plant my feet glorious. Now, I don't know what that means. Maybe this church won't always be meeting in a shed. Maybe it'll have soaring arches and stained glass windows and Kirk will be wearing a cassock and a hat. I don't know. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so this could speak of building programs for churches, but I don't want to get too parochial and I think that would really cheapen the the, the, the sweeping grandeur of this passage. It has a wider applicability, and here it is. Ezra built the temple before Nehemiah built the walls. You want to build a city? Start it with worship. You want to see the foundations of a civilization restored and changed? Start with the worship of God. Now with that, there might need to be some new worship spaces of whatever sort they are. Because as a people rises and as there is an in-gathering, inevitably you need larger quarters. And maybe they are nicer, or maybe they aren't. I don't know, but the point is, 
build the altar before you build the walls. And so often people want to just try and build the walls, build the city. Ezra came before Nehemiah. Remember that one. So worship becomes the foundation on which a life, on which a family, on which a church, on which a city is built. And there is also an aspect of personal blessing because this is what Isaiah also says, verse 17, instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of iron, uh, stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. So the second state of a people is intended to be an upgrade. This is the nature of a restoring God. Gold will substitute for bronze. Silver will replace iron. Bronze will replace wood. And iron will replace stone. And then the most amazing thing of all, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now, what this is referring to, and we see this same idea uh, picked up in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 5, the Lord himself is the light of heaven. When we are living in the realm of, of where God wants to take us to, I mean, in the very ultimate sense, then God himself becomes our light because after all, if the heavens and earth burn up, there is no more sun, there is no more moon. But God himself, he doesn't vary. He doesn't. There is no shadow of turning is what James tells us. That's part of his holiness as well. He's unlike anything else in the universe. So God himself becomes the light that will, that will give light to the city. But in a time, maybe even before that, in a time of restoration, let's say, oh, on a people, on a congregation, such as this one. What the Lord is saying is that there will be revelation that comes. It will be clearer understanding, clearer application and a knowledge of God and His ways. How would you like to be part of a church that really does live on revelation? Rather than, you know, the infighting and the flesh and the traditions of men and all the things that want to come in where, where the light is unhindered. There have been moments in church history where God has raised up congregations and people and movements where they live on that. I, I wonder if maybe this might be a house that will be a house that carries that light of revelation upon it. I think it's noteworthy that for those that have gone to heaven, you know, you, you hear about people that, you know, they've had experiences with God, they've gone up to heaven, they've been caught away, and they've, they've been in the throne room. Every single one of them reports that there is light everywhere. It's kind of a golden light that suffuses everything, but doesn't appear to have a source. And no matter where you look, there's no shadows. You know, the light in here is not too bad, but there's shadows. What is that? Well, shadows are the place where the light isn't hitting directly, but the light of God will be ubiquitous, and so therefore there will be no shadows. Imagine a life, maybe in this life, where the shadows in our lives are vanquished. No sorrow, no shame, no anger, no failings. No poverty, no brokenness, no fighting. How would that be? That's what the Lord is speaking of. And then he goes on and says when God's people are 
restored and they're settled permanently in the place He has for them, then He can display His splendor. God delights in displaying Himself in His people and to His people because in all of that, the nations see the very goodness of God. God likes to show off. I said that earlier. And conversely, Ezekiel says this. Now, Ezekiel was a little later than Isaiah, but he had a thing or two to say. He heard from God once or twice. Ezekiel has this to say. Verse, uh, chapter 36 in verse 20, But when they came to the nations wherever they came, he's referring to the Jews, the people of God, they profaned my holy name in that, in this way. People said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. So God's name is profaned when his people are brought low. So what Ezekiel said. And in case you think he didn't really mean what he said, in verse 36, Then the nations that are, that are left all around shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. God is renowned. God is known by restoration that the nations all around can see it. And when the people of God are walking in ruin, it is a disgrace to the very name of God. This, more than anything, is why we need the church to be reformed. Never mind the great sweeping revival. We need it so that God's name can be seen by the nations of the earth that when they look at the church, they go, there is something distinctive about them. That's what we need. And that's what God is bringing. And that's what we should be hoping for. That's what we should be praying into. That's what we should be anticipating will happen. Families restored. Rebel children coming home. Drunkard husbands getting dry. Wives that are adulterous coming back. Finances turned around. We should be anticipating and looking into that kind of a visitation because when that happens, God is glorified. He does it for the display of His splendor. And all of this is counterintuitive to what we hear in pop culture because to think, to listen to what is going on out there in the blogosphere, you might think that everything God does, He does for us. Oh no. He does it and we benefit. But He does it for His own glory, for the display of His splendor. And so consequently, while, his lo while He loves us, His blessings are not solely for our benefit. They are actually for His own. Everything God does, He does to maximize His own glory. Whether we like it or not, we are part of a cosmic contest between God and Satan. This is the message of the book of Job. Nobody likes to take it seriously, but it's true. And at the heart of it is this question, will human beings serve and worship God in sickness and in health for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer? Satan says, no, they won't, and God said, yes, they will. And so for the display of his splendor, he says he wants his people to be righteous and possess the land forever for the display of his splendor that all will know that the Lord was a restoring God as he was for Job. In the end, Job had twice as much as he started with. John Wimber, the founder, well, actually not literally the founder, but the one he's credited with being the founder usually, the first primary leader of the Vineyard Movement, famously said Christianity is not a self-improvement program. God is primary, 
We are secondary. Once we make that the focus of our living, everything else comes into focus. So, all right, now we know how God displays His splendor. Now let's talk in closing, how do we participate in the display of His splendor? Now this one's actually not that hard. You might think it would be, but it's actually not. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is commonly known as the Shema to the Jews. To love the Lord with our heart is emotion. We are fully invested and alive. Everything that we feel emotionally is directed Godward. To love with the mind means that we actually think about and think through our faith and that we have an intentionality that is well-reasoned about why we believe. Ours is not merely a religion in which we have an emotional experience, although those are good. It is also one in which we have our mind fully committed to the ways and purposes of God. Now there are some who are all about you know, rationality. We would put maybe the Presbyterians and reform people in that camp. They have very little experience of God emotionally. There are some who are highly emotional, have no ability to articulate really much of anything. But the scriptures are clear. We are to love the Lord our God with our heart and with our mind. And so in this restoration that brings about the display of his splendor, we should look at ourselves and say, okay, so where am I deficient? Am I too light on the mind or too light on the emotions? Whichever one I lack in, that's where I need to concentrate. And then love with your strength means to love God with your physical body. Do things that glorify Him. Refrain from things that dishonor Him. And take care of your body. Stop abusing it. Because many Christians do. That's what it means in the simplest terms. I mean, we could do a whole sermon on the Shema, but we won't have time, so we won't. But love the Lord with your heart and with your mind and with your body. Second thing, participate in the life of the community of God. Now the Lord's presence is displayed most fully in a living, breathing community of faith. And there are far too many people who have spent far too much time for far too long thinking they can ride the range. You know, like the Marlboro Man? Dun, 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 dun. And they think if they do that, they're, they, you know, them and Jesus, they're doing just fine. Thanks a lot. And you know what that does? That weakens the body of Christ. Here is what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica about this issue. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If I can ever get to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says this, you collectively, not you individually, don't hear it, I mean, you can hear it said to you as a person, but I want you to hear it more to you. You collectively became imitators of us. Who us? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We three who were a community, a roving community of apostles. You became imitators of us and of the Lord because when you saw us, you saw the life of the Lord because we mimicked the life of the Lord, and you liked what you saw, so, you, so when you copied it, and you copied our life, you copied His life. 
You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, you wouldn't know what that means unless you're somebody who reads the maps at the back of your Bible, but Macedonia and Achaia, we're talking like the entire Greek peninsula all the way up into the modern-day Balkan states like Macedonia and Montenegro and Serbia and Croatia. That entire region was impacted by the church that was planted in Thessalonica because they stuck together. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you collectively in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. This is the power of community. We see the same exact dynamic in Acts 19 when Paul was in Ephesus. The impact of the Ephesian community of believers had identically the same impact on the region called Asia, which would have been modern Turkey, um, the area around Bulgaria, the northern parts of Iraq and Iran, all the way into the Caucasus Mountains, all the way to like Azerbaijan. That whole region was impacted by the church in Ephesus because they were together. So when people hive off and they go on off do their own thing, all that does is detract from the very thing that the Lord wants to do of establishing people in a place, putting them in a body, and causing the glory of God to rise upon that assemblage of people. That is the intention of God. And anything less than that is not biblical. I don't care how many times you've gone to heaven or been to the heavenly bench or gotten the writ or done all these other things that everyone's talking about. I'm telling you, this is how you carry it out. This is the nuts and bolts operator's manual for getting there to that glory of God and the display of His splendor. This is how John Donne, one of the great metaphysical poets, said it. No man is an island entire of himself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Meaning, if you are broken off from the continent, if you are broken off from the body of the believers, you are the one who is suffering. You are the one who will not have the glory of God rise upon you. You are the one who will be crippled, who is not established in the land. And it will detract from the display of His splendor. So the second thing we do is we participate in the life of the Lord or of the community of God after we've already committed to Him emotions, mind, and body. So it isn't just, as the old saying goes, me, Jesus, brown rice, and UFOs. Third step, remain true to the Lord. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, fulfill the calling that you have received. 2 Timothy 4, 5. Many people have callings that they have to fulfill. Most of them have callings they cannot fulfill apart from the body. So keep your calling in mind and take steps to fulfill it. Everywhere I go, I meet people and they say, well, God's given me this incredible calling to da-da-da-da-da-da. And I say, what are you doing to fulfill that? Well, I'm just waiting for the anointing to fall. No, you have to take steps to fulfill the calling. I remember my friends, Bill and Joni. I knew them way back in the day, in the earliest years of the vineyard. These were people who had come out of a Jesus people movement back in the, kind of broke off of the Calvary thing, but it was its own kind of Christian commune movement. 
in the 70s known as Shiloh. And Bill and Joni were involved in the Shiloh movement, and I don't even know how it happened, but somehow God picked them up and dropped them into the vineyard. So they were part of the vineyard movement, and I remember one of the first times I met them, Bill said to me, we have a calling to go to Russia. I said, you do? He said, yeah. I said, wow, that's going to be hard to fulfill, because in those days there was this little problem called the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall, the Cold War, NATO, Warsaw Pact. He said, well, that's where we're going. And I said, okay. Now, I didn't know enough to ask all the hard questions in those days, so I just remembered that. But what I noted was that Bill and Joni were busy every week on Monday night. So one day I asked him, I said, hey, how come you guys are always busy on Monday night? He said, oh, because we're taking Berlitz Russian classes. Oh. They studied Berlitz Russian for 10 years. And when the Iron Curtain came down, do you know what they did? They got on a jetliner and they flew to Russia. And they immediately dropped in. And I wouldn't say they were fluent. I mean, how fluent can you get in Russian living in Southern California? But you know what? They were pretty far down the road and they could operate. And their Russian got to fluency like right away. And after a little while in Russia, they made their way down the face of the Ural Mountains all the way to southern Ukraine to this funny little town called Kharkiv. Usually people in the West say Kharkov. And when they got to Kharkiv, they planted a chain of outreaches called the Father's House and they led one million people to the Lord. One million people to the Lord. How serious are you about the calling you've received? Paul said to Timothy, see that you fulfill the calling that you've received. Bill and Joni didn't do what they did on their own, though. You know what they did? They had people that they'd met, that they'd teamed up with, who helped them, who prayed for them, who supported them, who came with them, who went on team with them. And when they got to Russia, they started building teams of Russians and Ukrainians. Today, there is an independent, self-sustaining series of churches all through Ukraine that goes into Belarus or Belarusia, depends on however you say that country. It goes into the other Soviet satellite states. It penetrates into southern Russia because the Father's house has continued to grow and spread. Remain true to the Lord. Don't make the cheap shot comment, God's given me this great calling. Put your money where your mouth is. Live it. Carry it out. Expect it to be a 10 to 20 year journey. It has been for them. And you know what the Lord did after they led their million-plus people to the Lord in Ukraine? A funny little thing called the Afghan War started. And so they went over to Afghanistan. How convenient. They speak fluent Russian, which is the second language of Afghanistan because of something that had happened in the 1980s when Jimmy Carter was president. So they got there, and they functioned on Russian until they learned to speak Dari. Now, I know a man, actually, I, I knew a man. He's gone to the Lord now. His name was J. Christie Wilson. He was the first Western missionary into Afghanistan in the modern era. And I talked to J. Christie Wilson in the 1980s, and J. Christie Wilson, who ultimately became a professor of Islamic missions at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Boston, Massachusetts, J. Christie Wilson said, my wife and I served in Afghanistan for 40 years, and he said, I could count on one hand the number of converts we baptized. Because Afghanistan was known as the graveyard of missionaries. Other than Saudi Arabia, it's the most Islamic country in the world. That's what J. Christie Wilson told me. When Bill and Joni rolled into Kabul, 
The first week they led 10 people to the Lord. In the first three years they were in Kabul, they led 1,000 people to the Lord. But they also went to Kandahar, and they also went to several other cities, and at last count they've led 3,000 people to the Lord. Those are the baptized ones. There's more besides that have not yet been willing to accept baptism. They've planted a network of churches inside of Afghanistan. See that you fulfill the calling you have received. This is the word of the Lord. And then with it, Paul said to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Because if you do, you will save yourself and your hearers. There's a lot of winds of doctrine blowing through the body of Christ today. This is one thing I've seen in the study of Scripture, but also going around doing what I'm doing. Some people call me a revivalist. I hate the term, but okay, some people call me that. Here's what I've seen. When there's a move of God, there's always heresy that rises up. So you have to watch your life and your lifestyle and your doctrine closely, and this applies whether you're 75 years old or you're 17 years old. Follow these three steps. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Participate in the life of community and remain true to the Lord in all that He gives you to do. And so that brings us full circle. There's nothing more beautiful than holiness. Paul said to Timothy, live a holy life. There's nothing more beautiful than the holiness of God. There's nothing more beautiful than the holiness of God lived in the life of a human being, a man or a woman. If we compromise on it ourselves, we will degrade the splendor of God's beauty upon us and through us, and our participation with God in a holy life allows the fullness of His splendor to shine forth in all that we do. This is what the Lord said. I do these things for the display of my splendor. Now, I've said a lot tonight, but if you sum it all up into just one thing, this is about your priorities. Are you after the splendor of God or are you after something considerably less? Anything less isn't worthy of you. But the splendor of God, now that's something worthy of pursuing with your whole life until you draw your last breath. And to this we cling and upon this we will stand. So help us God. Amen.